on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and our guest co-host, stage director Amy Hutchison. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with Amy to find out how she and her career survived when COVID hit opera land. And then Amy and I go head to head in an epic five round TKO with two deep rosters of stage directors battling it out for best productions. Plus two minute drill. Uh oh, the hammer, or is that the sickle? falls on another Russian soprano at the Met. And look, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to that podcast. Get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you're going to click follow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. It's that easy. And of course, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes on what we're talking about. Get your voice heard. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get OBS merch, beer coaster, lapel pin, just for sharing that hot take. What a deal. It's great merch, Weston. It's great to see you. Uh, It's good to see you too, George. And I'm really glad to be hanging out with you instead of all of the little flies that have been uh, around Chicagoland this week. Uh, Let me tell you, folks, if you don't live in Chicago, there is one day out of the year, if you're right next to the lake, where they come out and they mate. And it's the worst day of the entire year. You're spitting them out. It's a it's a real mess. I'm in my bunker hiding from them as we speak. So it's good to talk some opera with you. Amy Hutchison on the show with us as well. We're going to do a full intro in the moment. Amy, great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Have you been attacked by flies? I have not been attacked by any flies, but maybe it's because I'm on the closer to the west side. You're safe. I'm I'm not on the lake. (laughs) A little bit of sports talk before we get going. The WNBA champs, the Chicago Sky, our very own Sky, they're going to kick off their season this week, go for those back-to-back championships. They're also hosting the All-Star Game this year as well. A lot. I mean, happening. it makes sense because the stars are in the sky. I, that, no. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Stage director Amy Hutchison has championed American opera throughout her career and has served on the directing staffs of Lyric Opera of Chicago and Houston Grand Opera, dedicated to artist training, Hutchison has been a faculty member at Northwestern University and Westminster Choir College, as well as directing and coaching the young artists of Lyric Opera's Ryan Artist Center and the Houston Opera Studio. She joins us from Chicago. Amy, again, so glad that you're with us on the show. Thanks, George. Let's get down to it. Uh, Okay, so the question, how did you have to pivot at the Mm. beginning of this pandemic in the field of opera? Oh my gosh. It's, it's just been such a devastating time for all of our friends and colleagues. And uh, it's, it's really been dreary and dismal and it's thrilling to see opera and the performing arts in general really come bouncing back. I mean, Mm. audiences are so hungry to just gather and be in a room experiencing live performance at the same, you know, live performance together and especially live music. Um, so that's been really exciting. Um, pivoting, I had just one show that I was, you know, lucky that I just had one show that vanished, which was yeah. uh, so. So I count myself super lucky there, and I'm and lucky. It, did I, it completely vanish? 
totally vanished, completely obliterated oh. and, and will vanish forever. So because that by the time everything came back, other companies were doing it. So it was like <laughs> other companies in Chicago were like, oh, we've announced we're doing this. So it's like, well, that won't be happening. Okay, great, great. By the time the board of directors kind of, you know, got there, felt like, okay, we can do it again. It's like, oh, well, that's too late, folks, but that's okay. <laughs> That's it's it's right. definitely it's totally finders good. keepers rules in the cutthroat world of opera. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in, you know, the sort of storefront Chicago opera on the, on the smaller scale. But, you know, yeah. I just, I really spent a lot of time um, supporting, uh, donating a lot to opera companies, to friends, to, uh, you know, just to artists who were really suffering to really yeah. So I did a lot of that. And then I also was really thrilled with how our industry was finally really talking to each other mm. uh, in, you know, directors forums where directors who are seldom even at a company together in the same city together, you know, having time to actually converse about issues that are really important to in our industry. That was actually really, really exciting. All of these, the dialogue that has happened that seems to me uh, and I think to everybody, it should be making some really great changes in the industry, especially in terms of, of equity and inclusion mm, um, right. in casting and, espe and especially in um, administrations. Some really, really exciting uh, movement in that area across the board that I think that I don't think would have necessarily happened so quickly without those wonderful dual forces, well, I shouldn't say wonderful, but the dual forces of Black Lives Matter and the pandemic. And literally here we are all, we all have time and right. the opportunity to talk and be in dialogue with each other when we're not so busy, you know, making and learning and making and learning. So, yeah. Obviously, like, uh, as you said, like a lot of the live operas coming back for the first time, which is really exhilarating. Uh, I'm not a director, of course, but as an audience member, I'm I'm like, wow, it's 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 so weird to be back in the same room sometimes. Uh, but we also uh, beyond, you know, the social uh, aspects and the social movements surrounding the pandemic, Black Lives Matter and things like that. We were also kind of wondering because uh, we, we, we've been asking this question a lot about the future of opera, not just in terms of its social implications, but as like a medium. And one of the things we really saw was the growth of like digital opera, yes. video opera. Um, we're wondering if you had any uh, hot takes on that. Like, is that something you would see yourself doing or, or what, oh. what do you think the impact of that would be on the industry? Not just for you, but in general. Oh, I, it's, it's thrilling. First of all, it's thrilling that, that large companies have fully embraced, you know what, you're going to need to be, you know, everybody now expects to be able to view something on demand mm. from any place yeah. in the world. You know, it's, it's yeah. pretty much expected that if you're not live streaming it, that you're at least giving people digital access as an option, which I think is just, it's so great for our industry to be able to, first of all, and for directors to be able to have their work mm. is now going to be uh, captured our ephemeral work that, you know, <laughs> yeah. ah! <laughs> oh, it's too bad. We don't have a, a good video of this now, hmm. you know, companies, small, medium, and large have embraced the fact that, well, you really need to have a good video. And if you're, if you're not even live streaming it, you need to capture it. Um, so that's, that's just thrilling from a, from a, a 
the perspective of being able to see so much more than you could normally see. <laughs> like you know, I can see something from halfway across the world from the comfort of my own home, mm-hmm. which, you know, and it doesn't cost that much. Right. You know, the, the Netflix for opera is, um, you know, I think it's, it's fantastic. And I think it's going to, in addition, all of the, you know, the work of people who've been making, um, original works, original operatic works on film. One of the things that we were, I don't know if I can talk about this. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, I was in, in, I have been in conversations with the company about doing uh, a, a film version, a, a production for film. Yeah. Or like right, right. made for film, created for film. Um, a, a, of a show and you know it's really really fascinating to sort of dissect what what does it mean and how do we deal with how do we deal with our sound you know mm-hmm. opera which is so um i'm going to do a visual now for <laughs> opera which is just you know requires distance in some way to right. literally be able to cope with the the the, the epic sound that our uh, incredible olympian singers uh produce Versus the the medium of film is is all about intimacy. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. the, the the scale is it's totally different. You experience it in such a different way. Film is we're so accustomed to the close up, and this idea of that that emotional intimacy that's just this you know really tight connection. So that's the tricky thing, I think. Um, so, but there's been really fantastic and wonderful things, and I think you know directors have been. Um, embracing it uh, uh, in, in, and companies and audiences are embracing it in a wonderful way. Exciting. Is there something that you're working on right now or something that you just finished that you're proud of? Uh, sure. I just finished uh, doing As One uh, mm. again in um, op- at Opera Santa Barbara uh, with uh, our friend uh, Alexis Enyard, who is conducting mm. her sixth production it was you know since we did it first for chicago fringe opera uh george thank you very much for the opportunity to do do that i've had a really wonderful history with it and it was the it was the first time i've directed it It it's my fourth time directing it but it was the first time that alexis and i came back together yes since that very first one that we did and oh my gosh it was so rich and beautiful Two Chicago-based um, uh, singers were our Hannahs, and we actually just gathered literally last night because they happened to be back in Chicago with Costis Protopapas, who uh, is the uh, artistic and general director of the of Opera Santa Barbara. Um, Ashley Armstrong was Hannah after, and Evan Bravos was Hannah before. Right. So it was absolutely wonderful and great to you know do that piece again fantastic that's that's awesome to have it come full circle like that great to have you on the show again we're going to get down to tko in a second again if you're watching on tdo make sure you subscribe to the podcast you want the full show stitcher spotify you click follow apple podcasts you just hit the plus sign a little bit of sports before we get to the tko my father is a huge formula one auto racing fan and the locations of the grand prix change uh, throughout uh, every season. Uh, This year, there's two Grand Prix in the U.S. and the Miami Grand Prix, which I think is uh, 
not on the streets of Miami, but it's it's somewhere in the area of Miami this weekend. I think it's the first time they've ever had a Formula One Grand Prix in Miami. So if you're excited by people driving very fast. Uh, <laughs> in a circle. Around, well, <laughs> Formula One is not in a circle. That's the beauty of Formula One. But uh, Well, crazy. see, I'm from, I'm from Alabama, so I only know NASCAR. If it's not in a circle, don't, don't talk to right? me. Talladega, right? Is it, is it Talladega? Oh, yeah, Talladega. I, I drive past it. They got the flags. You know, it's a very patriotic site for me as, a, as an Alabama native. TKO, it's kicking off right now. TKO on the OBS. That's right, we're doing a TKO, but it's not a normal TKO. We're doing something a little bit different this time because usually we're pitting singers against each other, but we are in a very fun position tonight where we have two very talented directors uh, and George Cedarquist. Uh, and uh, we are here. <laughs> and to... <laughs> Amy Hutchison, dare I add. And so we are here. Uh, what I've devised for you, I've put on my referee shirt, so I'm ready to go. Uh, what we have here you is are a five... in your referee shirt. That's I... <laughs> That's for, for the uh, listeners to the podcast who aren't seeing the visual right now, I either look like a referee or the guy from Beetlejuice. Take your pick. <laughs> uh, so we are doing um, uh, a lightning round. We're doing five operas. I picked five operas for you that I feel exemplify the areas in which a opera director has to excel. And you have both picked uh, a pool of directors, which you have to choose from. You can't choose the same one. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to go through and you're going to try to convince me why in, I don't know, about a minute or less, uh, why they, your director should be directing these operas. And at the end, maybe we'll announce the winner. Maybe we won't. I don't know. I'm just Beetlejuice. So we're going to start with the first opera pick, which in my mind is like the sort of gold standard uh, in terms of something that if you are an opera director, you will probably be asked to do a lot, right? And that, of course, is La Boheme by Puccini. It's a deceptively difficult opera to direct. Uh, I'm going to start with Amy. Who is your pick to direct La Boheme? I'm going way, way, way out of limb. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that anyone would choose this director to do Boem, but I just thought, <laughs> you know, Boem is it's something. Everybody's done it. I'm going to confess, I have in all in my entire career, I've never even assisted on Boem. It's remarkable. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's totally bizarre. It's totally bizarre. <laughs> and perhaps that, you know, I've done plenty of Puccini, but I've never done Boem. Um, so I thought, well, you know. Who would do something that was just so completely different than anyone could ever imagine? It's something, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's one of the, you know, top operas that's always done. And I want to see what Robert Wilson would do. <laughs> that would be different. Can't you just imagine it? Like a, a, a glacial white set <laughs> that's just, it, it's almost in the middle of nowhere. And... <laughs> And, uh, you know, Parpignol is moving at a snail's pace throughout, just right around and leaving perhaps a little, a little, uh, a, a, a little trail snail of slime, trail. a little snail trail <laughs> as he just slowly just goes across <laughs> and around the set. Mimi comes in and just one single window up at the top with her candle. Ah, uh, the candle. Know, 
And I, and to even think of what would he do with the cafe? I mean, I, I just picture just, um, you know, a, a, a single, one single table just emerging up from, from the, from the <laughs> trap slowly, 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 epically through the entire act. And then everyone, again, it's going to take a little while, but eventually, um, uh, you know, uh, Musetta is going to, going to just have a blast and finally get on that table. <laughs> I think that's great. Amy, you're really speaking my language with this production, uh, but we have to turn to George now. George, who are you going to put up against Robert Wilson? First and foremost, let me say that now that we finally got rid of Oliver and Matt, we can actually talk about directors and people that matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my pick for Lava OM is Richard Jones, who oh. probably has done Bohem at some point. Of course, you might know his production of Hansel and Gretel, which has done Wonderful. the rounds. He's doing the ring cycle at ENO this season. Uh, he did Ario Dante at Lyric last year. Richard Jones' production of La Bohem would be a laugh riot. It would oh. be the funniest production of Bohem <laughs> you'd ever seen. The man's sense of humor is so dark, he mm -hmm. would find the humor not just in act one, which is genuinely amusing, but by the time you get to act three and act four or act two and act one, if it's the Yuval Sharon production of Detroit <laughs> Opera, right. it's, it would be just a laugh riot. And that's why people would want to see it. All right. I, it's come to me to make a decision. And uh, if you know me, uh, you know that I love Philip Glass. And because I love Philip Glass <laughs> for this production, of Puccini's La Boheme, I'm going to have to give it to Amy for this round. But that's okay, George. You're about to get another Just chance. Just for sheer audacity. <laughs> Just okay. for the sheer audacity. However, you might have played that trump card too early because now we have to go to uh, what I think is another interesting challenge that directors face. And uh, for me, that is the Baroque repertoire mm -hmm. because the conventions uh, of like high Baroque, of course, if you want to do something historically uh, informed is very complicated, very specific. So a lot of people tend to go the other way and really like embrace the freedom of audiences, not necessarily knowing what it was supposed to look like and really going off in another direction with it, which is what I really like about a lot of Baroque productions. So George, I'm going to give you the challenge of finding a director for Giulio Cesare, one of the five operas you know by Handel. Yes. I only know four <laughs> operas by Handel. But Giulio Cesare is one of them. It's such a good piece. My pick, looking at my roster of directors, uh, would be Katie Mitchell. Katie Mitchell, British mm. director, mm. has done a lot of theater, actually, a lot of Chekhov, and perhaps more recently, a lot of oratorio, and is kind of a whiz at putting on large-scale interpretations and points of view of oratorio, which can be really tricky to do. If you're working with Handel, da capo aria, the story uh -huh. does not move fast. You need someone who can bring, come in hot with a really mm. great point of view. And I think Katie Mitchell would do exactly that. This is just the sort of repertoire that she likes to work with. And she's just the sort of person to bring in a unique point of view that can carry you through the three plus hours of this opera. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that's actually a really good pitch. I'm I'm, I'm imagining it now. Uh, so uh, it come, it's up to you, Amy, to see if you can beat that pitch from George. Well, I'm dying to see some Katie Mitchell work, like right now. <laughs> um, uh, I, my pick is Thaddeus Strasberger. 
Because mm. I think Bad. like Thad, just I just want you to just think about Thad's work is always <laughs> like this man takes epic, like you can't even his his work. First of all, he he does work on on a scale, you know, massive outdoor works. His Turandot, it, it like literally, it's like carved into the side of a mountain and has you know fighters repelling down the side of a mountain <laughs> and people coming in by boat and uh you know and 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 people twirling fire absolutely incredible um so i think with with his chasere again the decadence i think what thad would do it would be you know really visually splendid thinking about thad taking egypt and 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 taking Cleopatra on, like, that's exciting. He has, you know, a, a big history with, with Rome. He had a beautiful, uh, really gorgeous La Clemenza di Tito in LA with gorgeous costumes by Maddie Ulrich, like gorgeous costumes by Maddie. Um, and I think that, that, you know, his work is so painterly that I think he would, he would really, uh, you know, just milk it, milk it, milk it for all the spectacle and fabulousness that I think is mm. uh, inherent in the piece and really just make it come. It would be surprise after surprise after surprise. He uses the elements, you know, fire, water, all that. And I think that could really come into a, a, a beautiful. Great for Baroque too. Yeah. Really, really nice for that. Yeah. Mm. Always uh, full of surprises. Oh man, this is actually, a real, I really want to see both of these productions. Um, gosh, uh, I think. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Amy again. I, I think I want to see <gasps> Thaddeus's production. That's two. That is two for Amy, none for George yet. Let's see if we can really turn it around. Because I feel like we've been talking a lot about spectacle, right? Even like the Robert Wilson, very big sort of yeah. abstract. I kind of want to take us a little bit in the other direction, unless you guys have a, a pitch for me that will blow me away. Because I, for me, when I think about Mozart operas, I think very much about the human drama, the very mm -hmm. specific, con almost conversational kind of drama that happens, uh, especially in what I think is the most Mozarty of Mozart operas, The Marriage of Figaro. Yes. That one, I think, is, a, is such a... Um, uh, almost understated piece in a lot of ways, but I think it's one that really you can a director can really show off how they can uh, uh, move their their singers and their actors in a way that really speaks to the audience. So I think uh, let, let's go ahead and start with Amy since you've just been winning all of them. Let's give you another <laughs> try here, okay. uh, Amy. Who is your pick for Marriage of Figaro? For Marriage of Figaro, I it, I pick Robert Carson. I would love <laughs> to see Robert okay. Marriage of Figaro. I, yeah. I have to say, oh. you say, oh, George is worrying. Oh, yeah, George. I'm worried. Three, I'm, you know, three strikes and you're out, George. That's, isn't that a sports thing? <laughs> um, it is. <laughs> uh, but Robert Carson, I mean, his work is always so sophisticated and just conceived, you know, from the beginning through the end. It's it's conceptually just, just so pristine. Mm -hmm. um, but also what... It, Robert's work, he always has really um, a meticulous attention to detail mm. of the libretto. And I think the libretto, mm. De Ponte's libretto to Notte di Figaro, is so fine and just, you know, replete with, um, you know, nuanced, wonderful human characters. 
you know, their foibles, who they are, but there, there's comedy and, and, you know, and Robert can also do comedy. You don't think of it like outright, but he, he definitely can. You know, he's really a man of the theater and he's also very actorly in addition mm, to having yeah. this fineness of, of, uh, of scale. And then also, of course, in a Robert Carson production, it would be, you know, there would be, you know, three walls where we're in this little universe <laughs> for the entire time. And then by the, you know, just imagine what, what will it be when, when, when the countess forgives the count, this glorious floor is one of the most glorious moments in all of opera. Then, you know, the, the walls will lift. Coriam tutti, coriam tutti, coriam tutti. Of course, the whole set would just lift and rise up to the sky. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful, wonderful celebration. Wow. All right, George, you're going to have to make a comeback. Amy's in the lead. Yeah, looking good. Uh, Amy, I, I think you assisted Robert Carson, didn't you? Or on one of yeah. those revivals? Yeah. I've I've actually done three Robert Carson three. shows. Man. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is not looking good for me. I will say, <laughs> I, I love this choice of repertoire, though. I mean, for this TKO. Fun fact, since Marriage of Figaro premiered at the Burgtheater in Vienna in 1786, I think there's literally been a production of it every day. <laughs> wow now, that's probably true oh opera staff for you okay so here's the thing robert carson uh, text analysis very close to the text the Duponte libretto of figaro absolutely pristine not how i would describe the marriage of figaro as okay as mm. great okay that's, that's fair that's fair here's my choice true. uh spanish director um catalan director calixto bieto the, mm. the bad boy of European opera, the people that the, the person that people hate to love and love to hate. <laughs> He's doing uh, well. Next episode, we'll be talking about his work uh, in Vienna next year. Here's here's what you're going to get. First of all, the entire chorus will be naked. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Probably. <laughs> and there will probably be sex acts in the show that I can't say on a family podcast. <laughs> Are they? Are they Italian words, George? (laughs) (laughs) But what you're going to get is you're going to get attitude. You're going to get response. Mm. You're going to you're going to be pushed and you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. But you are you are going to feel and you're going to feel deeply. And I don't think you can be more Mozart than that. Hmm. That's a good pitch. Uh, I love that. I think I will say, like, I think Robert Carson is an excellent director and I would love to see this production. But I do think that the production, Amy, that you described can be done by other directors in a way that perhaps George's selection could not (laughs) uh, legally in some places. Uh, So uh, maybe this might be a pity point at this point because you are behind George, but I think I will give George this round. (laughs) So right now we've got two Amy, one George. Let's see if we can tie it up in this next round. And I think this is actually a pretty good round potentially for you to take it, George, because we're talking about Benjamin Britten. I really wanted to make sure we included a chamber opera on this list. And of course, I think that in, in my mind, the quintessential piece in that sort of genre is turn of the screw. It's got all the drama, all the, the, the complicated vocal lines. It's got the, just the, there's something about it. That's really not 
like any other opera that I think is currently done on a regular basis. Uh, I love it. And I think George, as the resident um, Britain expert on the panel, I think you might have a really interesting pick for us. So uh, hit me with it. Well, I, so I'm running into problems already because on my on my roster, I've kind of painted myself into a corner. I've got two people mm. left on the roster with one person on the bench which I might have to use. Here's here's my choice for turning the screw. It's hometown hero Mary Zimmerman. Uh, mm, yeah. Performance studies at, at Northwestern University, directed uh, as a resident director at the Goodman Theater here in Chicago. Here's here's what Mary Zimmerman does well is first of all, period pieces very mm-hmm. well. I, you know, I I've been Mary's personal assistant on on a show and she has she did the Lucia at the Met in the mm-hmm. uh, early aughts. Uh, such a great sense of period and how to bring that period to life. Works with great designers, but a great understanding of the people of that period. And, and Turn of the Screw is nothing, if not a period piece, of course, um, based on the short story by uh, Henry, Henry James. James. Almost forgot that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do not say Edgar Allan Poe. Tempting, no. <laughs> but wrong. The other thing that Mary does so well is she is able to be ambiguous without being vague Mm. vague is like Mm. i don't know what's going on here ambiguous is like i think this is happening no i think this is happening oh yeah turn of the screw Mm -hmm. the bad productions of turn of the screw are vague and the good productions of turn of the screw are ambiguous lastly what i would say about about turn of the screw and this is to mary's credit typically in the work that i've seen of hers where it comes to sex is that it is very conceptual. It is a lot of sheets being flapped in the wind and a lot of <laughs> objects. Kind like of like a ghost, if you will. The point is, Turn of the Screw, you know, as, as a piece that revolves around sex, but the late Victorian sex, I think she would actually handle it in a very specific and surprising way. She's my choice. Okay, very, very strong pitch. I love the the vague and ambiguous distinction. That's great. All right, Amy, what do you have for me for Turn of the Screw? Okay, I would love to see Mary Zimmerman's Turn of the Screw. She, though, I, mean, so I, I think that would be, that's a fantastic choice. And I too have painted myself into kind of a ridiculous <laughs> corner here. No, my other choices, first of all, my one of my hometown hero choices has already done a production of Turn of the Screw, George Cedarquist, mm. that was actually really exciting and Sorry, new time. and fresh and scary and actually scary, mm. which was terrific. Thank but you. I have to say, my my other two directors are on my roster. I'm going to pivot away from them because mm. they're just... Oh, you're calling I, an audible. Oh, wow. She's going off script. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna go off, I've, I've got to go off script. Yes. And I'm going to... And I'm just going to say Francesca Zambello. I would love to see. Oh, let's oh. let's let's let these these two women titans of American theater and opera. Let's let them do it out. <laughs> um, you know, Cheska has you know such a great sense of of you know also definitely of history, but but there's something in in Britain. I actually don't know. Well, I mean, obviously Cheska's done Billy Bud, but there's not a ton of opportunity for, you know, shirtless bodybuilders in turn of the screw, <laughs> maybe a little bit, but, um, but, you know, that sense of, 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 you know, really sort of passion that feels to me like is really an undercurrent uh, yeah. 
in turn of the screw. It can be so, so you know, the, musically, it can be sort of, sort of ethereal um, and the spookiness, but I think Cheska would, could really dig into, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of terror, the passion, um, and also, you know, the, just the, you think about Mrs. Gross, mm-hmm. um, you know, it uh, makes me think about Rebecca, uh, Cheska, of course, directed, and I also can't pick Cheska for, for ring cycle. Cause she's already done. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, again, I could just see something that's, that's so haunting and so scary, but really is almost sort of boiling mm. versus this sort of slow simmer but that's just really sort of boiling and bubbling over and that is really just sort of makes you almost sort of shake with terror about what yeah next. yeah i i think that's a really good pitch unfortunately because uh you did go off the bench i i, I am wearing the referee shirt i have to put a flag in the play <laughs> and unfortunately that means uh we give it to george for this round which means we're oh would you look at that how coincidental and unplanned of me we have a tie going into the final round who will win and uh you mentioned it earlier amy but i'm going to say the final pick for me is probably the most daunting task for any director of opera and that is of course wagner's ring cycle you talk about scale you talk about commitment you talk about cast size difficulties dealing with the orchestra You know, it it is a monumental task for any one or even several directors to have to handle, even if you're doing multiple directors in the same production of Rheingold. Um, So I want you. uh, (laughs) So I want you both to uh, pick me uh, one more director to who you think can take on the ring. Let's start with our guest, Amy Hutchinson. So this is an extreme. This is a really unconventional choice for a million reasons. The first of which is that he's dead. Uh, that could so be a bit of an issue. I'm going to have, I'm, you know, Weston, even though Wait, we did turn a- of the screw last time. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, this is a, a, another director that I, that I assisted that I think there's something about the ring cycle that is, there are there are so many layers of story that are happening, and you right. know it, it's so thrilling when ring audience, when the ring heads have descended upon your city <laughs> to see a full cycle. And of course, you know Chicago was absolutely robbed of its cycle by the mm-hmm. pandemic. Yeah. This, I mean, I don't know that there is a sadder, <laughs> a, a sadder, uh, uh, you know, loss in yeah. terms of opera. I mean, I, excusing, of course, our colleagues who passed away, but, but all of the years and years of planning uh, and then for, to have lyric have its ring cycle, Mm. you know, absolutely ripped uh, at the dress rehearsal, you know, that, okay, sorry, everyone can't go on. This show literally can't go on. And I mean, I'm assuming it never will. I don't, you know, there, I don't know how, I I don't know. I just don't think it could. I don't, you know, I don't have an insider track. Uh, on that, but I, you know, I just don't see how it ever, ever could. In any way, here's my, here's my pitch for the zombie director to, to like, what in the world would he do with the ring cycle? I'm going to pick Robert Altman. Oh, here is why Bob Altman. First of all, I think that, you know, a, a lot of directors have been able to sort of enjoy the find humor 
within the ring. And that's always really appreciated um, because it's not something that you think of, but, but it is very human. It is, you know, yeah, though it's there about are all gods and goddesses, there are jokes for sure. I would argue but, it's funnier than Meistersinger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, oh, Meistersinger. Um, uh, but Bob just has this, you know, this take on human nature that is, you know, he really doesn't take people all that seriously and he really, um, the other the other aspect to Bob's work always in everything, in his films and in his uh, in his operas, he he loved to have so much going on in the mm. stage picture at all times. And I think of you know oftentimes in in ring production in in the different productions of the ring you know you're really focused on okay well here are the rhine maidens here's alberich here's the dragon all of that that you you're 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 really focused on here is exactly what's happening in this moment in the opera and not right. so much on all of the layers of right, backstory right. all yeah. of the other characters in this epic tale and what what could be going on in their storylines that could, you know, that could reveal something about this moment that's happening right now playing in front of us. Uh, Bob's work was, you know, he's always said, I, you know, I want that stage to look like a Dutch ice skating painting where there's just so much happening throughout the stage picture that, that it's all overlapping and it's all happening at all times. Mm. And I think that could be really exciting with a yeah. ring cycle because of all of the characters and all of the, the fact that, you know, we're so, sometimes we're on the earth. Sometimes we're at Valhalla. Sometimes we're on, we're in this, you know, in the ride, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think it could be really, really fun to have, especially for people who really know, all the characters and and know all the stories and you know know it from beginning to end and to to really reveal you know all of that I think could be super fun. Amy really coming in with Team Bob over here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you're keeping track, I believe that's Zombie Bob. Roberts. Uh, so George, <laughs> we have what it takes to beat the Bob and beat Amy. This is your final chance. Who is your pick to direct the rake cycle? Yeah, don't call it a comeback, Hutchison. You were two up and you thought <laughs> oh, it was oh. Here we go. So it is the ring cycle. It is the Super Bowl of opera, definitely. Except that the True. Super Bowl is longer than the ring cycle. So I really <laughs> painted myself into a corner again because the last person on my list has already been used, which was Robert Wilson. Mm. So I'm going to have to go to the bench to the sixth man in basketball terms. And of course, this is a man actually, Graham Vick. Oh Graham yeah. Vick oh. Died of COVID 20, I think late in 2020. Here's the oh. thing. Graham Vick uh, founded the Birmingham Opera Company, Birmingham, England, which was one of the most effective, passionate, community-driven opera companies that I have ever come across. Of course, Graham Vick's productions are still being done. They're still part of the repertoire. Right. But if you wanted a production about of the ring cycle that wasn't gods and monsters, but that was family, community, mm -hmm. and relationships about real people that actually involved 
the people that were in that community that were producing it, that were watching it, that were building it. The sense of discovery on stage and off, there is no one better than Graham Vick to do that. So if that is your production of Ring Cycle, he is your guy. All right. Two very, very Ooh. strong final picks. Two very interesting final picks, too, I would add. Both um, yeah. coming back, coming Both. back to Earth, coming That's back to. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. I think I, I think uh, it's kind of funny because I feel like you both uh, picked a uh, uh, very kind of opposite for for each of them. But this one really has like a certain like unity to it. I'm like, I'm like, I really see both of those in the same kind of way. And in the spirit of that, in the spirit of not tearing apart the Chicago opera directing community, oh, well, I am <laughs> going to declare it a tie. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations to you both for our inaugural director. Like Madonna, I did, we didn't have to invoke, you know, Cash, the great Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and flip like <laughs> Madama Butterfly and sting like Cozy. <laughs> George's mouth can't beat what George's hands can't see. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm second thought just because of that, I'm giving it to Amy. All right, Amy wins. All right, let's move on. That quote was phenomenal. I'm putting that on a t-shirt. Amy Hutchison takes it away with TKO, two-minute drill. That's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. It's a major award. The Met has announced the 2022 winners of the LaFont competition. Congratulations to Lee Boo, Matthew Cairns, Alexander Razakoff, Julie Rosette, Anna Marie, Anne Marie Stanley, and Esther Tonet. It's the Major Internet Award. San Francisco <laughs> Opera and Luma High Productions received the 2022 Webby People's Voice Award for Best oh. Music Video Series and Channel for its series in song. The awards lauded by the New York Times is quote the internet's highest honor. I thought that was just when what happens when you get your post gets 20 likes on Facebook, but you know, awesome. apparently we are in different circles, me and the New York Times. The Met has announced that Russian soprano Hibla Gertsmava, a, a Putin enthusiast, has been dropped from next season's production of Puccini's Tosca. Her replacement will be Ukrainian Ludmila Monastirska, who replaced Anna Netrebko as Turandot. Monastirska recently made headlines for wrapping herself in a Ukrainian flag during a curtain call in that same Turandot production. The Met and Polish National Opera have joined forces to create the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra, comprised of refugees and Ukrainian members of European orchestras. Quote, I wanted to bring the best orchestral musicians of Ukraine together from both inside and outside of their countries in a proud display of artistic unity, said friend of the show, Carrie Lynn Wilson, who will be directing and conducting the ensemble. Bogdan Rosic, general director of the Vienna State Opera, announced in a press conference last week that Anna Netrebko would not be banned from performing at the Staatsoper. Rosic conceded that artists that are publicly for the war would not be getting contracts at state theaters, but said, quote, it's not up to us to ask people to speak out, adding that, quote, again, I personally do not believe that Ms. Netrebko should be banned from working in the country of which she is a citizen. 
Pittsburgh Opera and the National Opera House have announced a new partnership involving music education programming, artistic development, and community engagement. The National Opera House, originally known as the National Negro Opera Company, was the site of one of the first black opera companies in the U.S. Quote, this coming together of our two organizations is monumental, said National Opera House President Jeanette Solomon. The time for reconciliation is never too late. In trade news, Glyndebourne has announced that Richard Davidson Houston will be the festival's new managing director. He's taking over from Sarah Hopwood, who is set to retire from the position after 25 years with the company. Exit stage right Australian countertenor Max Rebel, who's died at age 30. Rebel was just starting an international career in addition to a thriving cabaret tour that combined pop and classical music. A statement from Pinchcut Opera said, Quote, Max will be counted among the great countertenors. At the forefront of his musical personality was an unwavering dedication to beauty, clarity, and warmth of tone. Plato Carianis, a former general director of the Dallas Opera, has died. TDO wrote, quote, he served the company faithfully from 1977 to 2000, and his impact will be forever felt within the Dallas Opera family. Throughout his entire life, Plato was an innovator in the arts, and we are honored to have benefited from this relationship for more than 20 years. His memory lives on in the Carianis Rehearsal Production Center, as well as an impressive legacy of artistic achievements. And on this day, May 2nd, in 1660, was the birth of Italian composer Alessandro Scarlatti in Palermo. 1692, first performance of Henry Purcell's opera The Fairy Queen in London. In 1754, the birth of Spanish composer Vicente Martin Isoler in Valencia. 1854, the first performance of Offenbach's Le Mariage aux Lanternes in Paris. 1855. Next year, the first production of Verdi's Trovatore in the U.S. That was at the Academy of Music in New York City. 1955, the American debut of baritone Dietrich Fischer Diskow in a song recital mm. in New York City's Town Hall. And in 2022, George got to do On This Day for the first time ever. Really? Is that the first time? Oh, congratulations, everybody. That's your two-minute drill. singing Oh Solitude by Henry Purcell. Yeah, a very tragic death uh, from uh, from cancer. He announced just uh, a few days before it happened on Facebook that he had been diagnosed uh, with incurable cancer. And uh, uh, it just really tragic to lose anyone at that age, but certainly someone with such promise and just really getting started on, on the international stage. Um, yeah. Pinch got a phenomenal opera company in Australia. Uh, Max had first performed there in 2019, so just a few years under his belt. Of course, probably some of those performances sacrificed to COVID as well. Before I forget, make sure you send us a voice memo. Email us your own hot takes on what we're talking about in the two-minute drill. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to want to get that OBS merch. Man, the Met drops another singer like a hot rat. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's very interesting to see. Obviously, this we've been seeing this happening all over the place. Uh, obviously, pro-Putin uh, singers being dropped left and right, and in the case of some, you know, even 
more ambiguously pro-Putin getting dropped as well. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's kind of what's expected uh, and it will probably continue to happen uh, for uh, a while to come. But I do think that leads us in a little bit to the latest Anna Netrebko drama, which, of course, we don't want to give too much airtime to because uh, she is the drama. Uh, and uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, it feels like Roshich is really positioning himself counter to the Metropolitan Opera specifically, right? Because uh, the Met has very much been um, prior to the whole war, uh, Netrebko was very much the golden child uh, of the company. And uh, now that, uh, and now even though she has publicly expressed disapproval of the war, um, there is sufficient evidence, at least in uh, at least in the public perception, that she is maybe a little bit less than um, honest about her past involvement with Putin and the regime. So it's very interesting to see the difference between companies and how they are treating Anna specifically. Anna Netrebko <laughs> is about as Austrian as I am, which is to say one shade of Wienerschnitz. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, Rosich says, I personally do not believe that Mr. Trebko should be banned from working in the country of which he is a, a citizen. It's not about citizenship. It's about coming down on the side of right. And the tragedy is that someone as prominent as her could actually use that prominence for, for good. Yeah, it's true. And could actually, yeah. you know, come out and really, I, I think, have an impact. If you have people in the performing arts and the public eye who really, you know, come out and say what's on their mind and, and speak truth, then you have the, the power. With, with great power comes great responsibility. You have the power yeah. to really try and change mm-hmm. the narrative. Yeah. But I, I'm not saying that's easy. Yeah. What's, what's also not easy is apparently hiring someone for Glyndebourne who doesn't have a double name. Yes. I, it's, <laughs> I think it's part of the job description is that you have to have a double-barreled surname in order to run a place like Glyndebourne. Uh, How Sarah Hopwood lasted 25 years, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Richard Davidson Houston, or is that Houston? It might be Houston. I, Houston sounded very Texan when I said it, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure he's going to be just, just fine. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's also a lot of uh, uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a really interesting sort of shifts going on in, uh, right now. Um, I, I feel like a lot of companies coming out of the pandemic, they've had like their first season sort of outside it. I feel like we've seen a lot of turnover recently as mm-hmm. like the old guard is like, OK, we finally have done one last project it's time to like try to pass on to the next generation. And we're, we're seeing that reflected in a lot of diversity as well. Maybe not so much with uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Houston here. Um, but I do, I do think, uh, and this could just be a consequence of how we are doing the show now, but uh, I, I feel like we're seeing a lot more turnover in artistic directors and stuff ever since, um, mm-hmm. uh, since we, this time two years ago. Yeah. It's because they're all exhausted and tired. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. They're I, I throwing totally their get hands it. up like this is let this be someone else's problem. I got us through yeah. this and and it's and it's still insecure. You know, it's still not, <laughs> not entirely clear where we go from. Before here. I wrap it up, the I feel like I've actually heard of the Webby People's Voice Awards. I it sounds made up. I, 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 it's I, not made up, man. It's real. It's real. The New York Times called it what is it the internet's highest honor? Like, 
I don't know. I it's it just seems like uh, I mean I uh, no this is not to disparage the achievement. I think that they definitely uh, deserve the award. It's just very funny to me whenever I come across a, an award, another yet another award that I've never heard of that I've never heard anyone ever talk about before, and the New York Times just calls it the the highest honor on the internet. And like there might be a difference between the print media and the internet media in this right. case. I could be wrong. Uh, I apologize to the New York Times if I am, but. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. I could fight the New York Times. It's fine. It's a it's a piece of paper. <laughs> the I, I said we we're going to wrap it up. One more story I want to get to and get oh, Amy please take do. on this. This is the the Pittsburgh Opera National Opera House partnership. Fabulous. Uh, this is yeah, it's really fabulous. This has been in the Opera America magazine a couple of times right now. The building itself in right. the Hill District in in Pittsburgh, right? So the Hill District. This is the stomping ground of playwright. August Wilson. This is a yeah. very, very mm-hmm. important building. And just imagine the potential of this pairing. It's really thrilling. And I think, you know, tying that history and saying, you know, this is at this moment that we're experiencing in our industry is just, it's just, I'm ecstatic. I'm personally really ecstatic to have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Black artists, you know, featured that we're telling stories about African-American stories and, and people and, and, you know, myriad stories, black joy, black love, uh, in addition to, you know, uh, pain and oppression and, and, and everything you know, that people have gone right. through. Um, it's, it's an exciting time. And it also really like uh, I think the really cool thing about this pairing for me, too, is like bringing in the history of it, too, because I, I feel like there's a, a misconception out there in the general public who think of black opera as being a very new phenomenon. We're right. just now doing it. It's it went it went all the way back. This is one of the first opera companies, 1942. I believe there were some Wonderful. that actually predated that, that uh, Harry Lawrence Freeman was associated with. Of course, Scott Joplin wrote an opera mm-hmm. in the 1800s. Even there's this long, long legacy of black William singers, black composers. Exactly. Uh, and the people involved, you know, in the original uh, National Negro Opera Company, too. Uh, the, we've got Robert McFerrin, Bobby McFerrin's yes. dad, which is always fun. Uh, Lillian Avanti, Minto Cato. It just, it's, it's really kind of, uh, there's this whole legacy there that's been neglected and deserves yes. to not just be like... It, Black opera is not a new thing. It need, we need to acknowledge that it's always been there. It's mm-hmm. always been unfairly moved to the side where you're doing little productions in a house somewhere because Pittsburgh bo- opera won't have you. But now they mm-hmm. can yeah. be there. Yeah. You know, I think it's really valuable. I think it's really exciting. I'm very excited about this partnership. Lastly, of course, the National Opera House uh, is a place historically of black excellence. And that's the last thing that I think is is important that we really lift up, right? Is spaces that are full of black excellence. This mm-hmm. is the building that Denise Graves is as of last year was campaigning to try. Yes. Right, yeah. Let us wrap our show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is how we always take you home wherever you are, however you're listening. Something really great that our panel has seen or heard or watched or something pretty dreadful with our guest (laughs) co-hosts. We're going to kick it off. Amy Hutchison. Well, 
I want to say a good call is a future good call. I hope that people will be paying attention to the fact that Detroit, speaking of Black Opera, uh, that uh, Detroit Opera, which is the 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 rebranded sort of correct corrected name of Rightly so. formerly Michigan Opera Theater, it's now Detroit Opera, which is wonderful. Uh, is producing uh, Anthony Davis's X, The Life and Times oh, yeah. of Malcolm X. And I could not be more thrilled. I'm going to try and make, get my butt to uh, Detroit, uh, <laughs> May 14th, 19th, and 22nd. So um, hop on a train, get a road trip, do what you need to do. <laughs> it is going to be the place to be. It's Take a us beautiful opera house. <laughs> I was there. I did a tra- the Traviata that opened the, the opera house. It's a fabulous, mm-hmm. fabulous um, hall to experience opera in. And I mean, I just, this cast, Devone Tynes is Malcolm. Whitney Morrison, who just actually had yet another just incredible triumph in Fire Shut Up In My Bones as right. even going on as the as the second, well, she wasn't even originally second cast, she was the understudy um, in that. And just, woo, awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it's really going to be thrilling and... Um, I'm going to be there for it. Weston Williams. My good call this week. I have been listening to a new recording. Uh, This is the uh, Rene Jacobs uh, uh, with the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra doing their Freischutz. Um, Now, this is not your your dad's Freischutz. This is a radio play version where they have redone some of the dialogue to modernize it. I don't speak enough German to know how how modern it is. Um, But they've also, uh, because obviously there's, if you remember, there's a prologue at the beginning to explain some things because originally that was going to be part of the opera. It got cut, Uh, Weber regretted it, and he added in the spoken dialogue. So what Jacobs has done is take music from other Weber projects, and I think a little bit of Schubert, and put those to text and fill in some of those holes in the opera. And when you talk about sound effects and like top notch, like completely hammy in the best possible way, um, uh, speaking during the, for the speaking parts, especially in the Wolf's Glen scene, it mm-hmm. is a delight. It is so much fun to hear. It's a refreshing sort of new take that uh, on the opera oh. that really sort of preserve. <laughs> Like it's just like that. A radio you're, you're play. Stealing it. We're going to get a, a a copyright claim on that because of that. Uh, but no, this is a, a great little uh, radio production, uh, as it were, and it's a studio recording too, which is pretty rare for operas nowadays. So, highly recommend you check that out. It's a lot of fun. My sixth grader is in the middle school musical, which is Into to the Woods Junior, Aww, which is wonderful. fantastic. Please, Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. As oh. Howard said, but um, enough about him. We can't keep him you off know, the stage. It, uh, it, it got me thinking. I would love to see a ring cycle, Junior. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Directed by yes. by Amy Hutchison. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That's it for I this love children's opera of America's Dog Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, it's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, if you're watching on TDO, you make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get the full show, Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore, gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. 
Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest co-host, Amy Hutchison, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about operas. You try and stage Act 2 of La Boheme with an 80-person chorus in a single three-hour rehearsal. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week when we highlight the key players in America's summer opera season this year. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more notes from that dress rehearsal. Join us. <laughs>